0: Welcome to NCBA's Cattleman's Call Podcast with host, Lane Nordland. Hello, everyone, and it's time once again for the Cattleman's Call Podcast. Thanks for joining us right here today, and if it's your first time, welcome, and if you've listened to a few of those shows, thank you so much for coming back and subscribing to this platform to just share THE AGRICULTURE STORY OF OUR LIVESTOCK INDUSTRY HERE IN THE UNITED STATES. AND TODAY, WE HAVE A CATTLEMAN THAT HAS JUST BEEN A BIG PART OF THE NEBRASKA CATTLEMAN SCENE. AND OF COURSE, ON THE NATIONAL LEVEL, AGAIN, MR. BILL Richels JOINING US HERE TODAY. HE CALLS LINCOLN, NEBRASKA, HOME RIGHT NOW. Bill, BILL, HOW ARE YOU DOING?
1: I'M DOING GREAT, LANE. GOOD TO BE WITH YOU.
0: NOW, OF COURSE, uh, YOU MENTIONED LINCOLN'S BEEN YOUR HOME FOR THE PAST FEW YEARS, BUT YOU WERE IN THAT NORTH PLATTE COUNTRY FOR A LONG TIME. Uh, Let's just talk about growing up in Nebraska and, and being in the cattle scene down there. And, and what inspired you just to stay involved in that? Well, Lane, we, we have to back up a little bit. When you say
1: growing up in Nebraska, uh, my wife and I and our family, three daughters, did not move to Nebraska until 1975.
0: No, we've spent, So not too, you know, that was a pretty short time ago. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Relatively speaking, but still spent the vast majority of our life now in Nebraska in the cattle industry and I Actually grew up on a generalized stock and crop farm at York, Pennsylvania Uh, Was in 4-H like many people are in agriculture as a kid and uh, was very involved in that Uh, had an ambition early on to be in this cattle business and gravitated toward the purebred sector or the seed stock business and it was a dream to attend college at Penn State University which I did and became very involved in that but worked my way through school living in the beef barn and um, participated in a lot of events there like our little international livestock show, uh, meats judging team, livestock judging team and our judging team, uh, livestock judging team, had uh, a real, real pleasure of having a great season and topping it off with uh, the international champion livestock judging team in Chicago International. Wow. So quite, quite, a, quite an event. And, and uh, just to add a little piece to that, today, all of our judging team and spouses get together every year for a reunion. And we tell the same old lies and jokes. And uh, (laughs) you know, our wives now can repeat them without uh, hearing
0: them again. Now, are they just mainly based in Pennsylvania or are they all over the the United States? No,
1: these these guys are uh, primarily back East, but uh, a couple of them in Pennsylvania, uh, Ted Kukuk and Gene Swigert, agriculture oriented. uh, One of them uh, raises a lot of sheep. Uh, We had guys that were very involved in different species. Fred Garrison was, uh, he became a veterinarian and very, very successful in that arena. And Alexis Coleman ended up with a family farm in New Jersey where they raise a lot of vegetable crops and what have you. Jim Males became head of the department at South Dakota State in Animal Science, went on his last stint was at Oregon State University. And uh, so we've we've had quite a group uh, Jim McGreevy, uh, who was an outstanding uh, quarter horse guy and thoroughbred horse guy, uh, works with horses in southeastern Pennsylvania and Delaware in that region. And uh, everybody's just been quite
0: successful in agriculture and as state in ag. Well, you, you mentioned 4 H, and I was very active in FFA. It, it's truly a strong foundation to develop work ethic for all these youth to have a successful career, whether it is in agriculture or in business outside of the ag arena. And I just find it so fascinating, you know, coming from Pennsylvania, let's let's talk about that transition <laughs> and that opportunity to move west. What, what motivated them? What were some of those factors and what were some of the challenges moving moving into an area you, you hadn't been in?
1: Yeah, I, there, there's quite a bit of background to it and it probably makes sense um, after you hear the story Uh, Growing up on the farm that I grew up on, uh, we didn't call them ranches in that part of the world, but we ran a small group of commercial cows that years later slowly developed into some registered cattle as we purchased some and turned the herd over to a seed stock operation, but we would feed about 150 head of steers a year. And some of those feeder cattle came out of West Virginia in the day, and I can remember as a kid when they'd come from Montana through an order buyer on a boxcar on the train. And I think one of the neat, it's almost a trivia question if you will, but one of the neat things that um, I can share with folks is the fact that the in Lancaster County, which was just east of the county I grew up in there in Pennsylvania was the Lancaster Livestock, commission company and yards and at that point in time when i was a kid that was the largest terminal market east of chicago and most of those fed cattle were harvested a lot of it went in the kosher market the front ends and it was fascinating the uh, order buyers would ride up and down the alley on their horses just like the old days everywhere else and bid on the cattle and and then those cattle would end up being purchased by one of the packing companies you know and head on to the consumer so exposed to that an early age and then went to college and i did i i traveled some i knew a little bit about this country was fortunate enough to be across a lot of it and after i uh, did my undergraduate studies i went back and finished a master's degree in animal breeding and then i went out and managed a couple of purebred angus outfits in new york state And um, in 1975, the gentleman I was working for owned 76 supermarkets in Long Island, New York City. He was a great guy It exposed me to that end of the business. And I had the good fortune of traveling with him to Dakota City, Nebraska in 1971 and had an opportunity to tour what was then Iowa Beef Packers and to see the first ever box beef plant operating in the world. And it was an experience that I think impacted my life greatly in how I looked at this industry. And uh, seeing those kind of monumental changes that change the way we do business, and obviously for, for the better, mm-hmm. to be more efficient and uh, to produce a quality product, and, and I just kind of took it upon myself over time
0: and developed a desire to be a part of the industry and to try to give something back. I, I want to just jump back to, you were talking about going to Long Island into those grocery stores. You know, nowadays we really focus on consumers, on consumer demand, their preferences and their feedback. Did you see, did that kind of, when you look at that now, what what was that like being, being in, in a city on the East Coast and seeing how those consumers were you know looking at at these products in the grocery store how's that changed for you
1: well i think you would find this a bit fascinating two things that i remember very clearly from that and harold topple mr topple who was a tremendous guy and and a great education for me outside of the cattle business there were two things that i recall one was when he would tour one of his markets one of his stores The first stop was to go check out the restrooms and see if the manager was keeping them clean. Uh, I think that's a great lesson in terms of details that benefits us all in whatever we do. It doesn't have to be the restroom. But that was one thing that impacted me a lot on detail when when you're trying to be successful in a business. And the other thing was he would always tell me in those days, the meat counter was the most important spot in the store. And as the meat counter was successful or not successful, absolutely drove the rest of their business in those days. And uh, I I thought that was fascinating because to some degree, we still see that today.
0: And uh, that's, that's a great thing for our business. And you look back to even the trends back through the 80s and into the early 90s when there was a drop-off in the consumption of beef and then the promotion through the checkoff to be Sam Elliott's voice, Beef It's What's For Dinner, really helped revitalize that. What Are those grocery stores still in the same family? Do you know that? or
1: No, they're not. A lot of that has changed um, since uh, that's many, many years ago, and, and much of that has changed uh, the economic situation in certain districts change, and um, I, don't, I, I wouldn't believe that there's any business I know of that's from, the, from that era would still be in business in the same way today. You look at the automotive industry and the changes that took place there over the same period of time. They don't represent anything today like they did then.
0: So when you look at agriculture, what are some of those changes that you've seen that have been positive, maybe some changes that maybe weren't the greatest in your time on the East Coast and then being in the Midwest? Uh, yeah, there,
1: there's quite a few. And it's it's a phenomenal study, I mean, to think about. One of the changes that took place, and I don't remember the exact dates, but it was maybe late 70s, um, there was a move by our industry and with support from USDA to reduce the USDA grading standards, which we did as an industry. And the thought process then was that if you reduce those standards and just produce more lean meat, that we'd be more competitive with our other protein sources in our business such as poultry and pork for example Uh, and of course to some extent back in the day lamb but you know the truth was uh, there was a NCA meeting in San Diego not too long after that and there was another move and suggestion of a resolution to reduce the standards again and some of us that day stood up and took opposition to that realizing how much different our beef industry is in terms of cost and getting a product to market and fully believing that the value component through taste consumer acceptance the marbling factor in our product was absolutely essential for us to uh, continue to operate in this environment and some of that was due to the i like to talk about uh the great paradigm shifts. When, if I talk with students at some of the universities, uh, one, one of the great shifts in our industry was when we introduced artificial insemination in the cow-calf sector of our business. That totally changed how we were able to do business, how we could make progress in genetics. In 1978, there was a program... Well, let, let me back up. I mentioned earlier about the trip to Dakota City and seeing the first-ever boxed beef plant. One of the greatest paradigm shifts ever in the history of our industry was boxed beef. Crivacking a product, being able to ship boxes instead of hanging carcasses, so much more efficient, um, paid more attention to probably quality. That was the beginning of that revolution. And so that's a paradigm shift that was phenomenal and impacted our business in a a very positive way. 1978, certified Angus beef came on the scene And they showed everybody how to take the responsibility for what you produced. Put your name on it. If there's a problem with it, get it fixed. And um, there was
0: a lot of skeptics of that back in the day, too.
1: Well, not only a lot of skeptics, but the chances of failure were far greater than the chance of success. And it was due to a very small number of individuals, first of all, those very visionary individuals who sat down and talked about the pro- the prospect of that kind of a program, about five people. And then a guy by the name of Mick Colvin, who was asked to be the first um, CEO, whatever you want to call it, worked out of his garage and finally st- sold the first pound of certified Angus beef product. And there was lots of steps along the way when it looked like it probably wasn't gonna work. Mm-hmm. But it was due to just a bulldog effort to bore in and stick with it and stay with the process. And today it is, uh, you know, it, it's a business that sells into 40 some countries around the globe and has set the stage and, and the, uh, it's pointed away for so many other branded programs to try to operate in that space. Mm -hmm. So you had that, and then uh, we talk about genomics. Today, in my end of the business, the seed stock deal, and it's impacting all segments. It impacts the feeder, it impacts the packer. Uh, It really impacts the consumer, and uh, as well as the packers, so that genomics is another paradigm shift that was phenomenally valuable to our industry and changed how we do business. Yep. And those things are the positives. Uh, uh, negatives, you know, there's there's sometimes there's a little too much dissension and not enough um, cooperation, trying to work as a team, pull the wagon all in the same direction, but that's, that's part of... Uh, Mother Nature, I guess, and and doing business. But for the most part, a a lot of very, very positive things going on in our industry today. And paramount to that process was when we as an industry decided uh, to change how we do, do business. And what I mean by that is, as a young guy in my end of the business, we would rely on universities and the university animal science professors to recommend an ideal kind of a beef animal. Mm-hmm. And then we would try to produce that, and we'd say to the cow-calf person, here it is. And the cow-calf person would say to the feeder, here it is, what do you give me for it? The producer would do the same thing, or the, pa- the feeder would do the same thing with the packer. And then finally, somebody would put that product in front of a consumer and say, will you buy it, please? And when we as an industry, and I made some changes in our operation in the 1980s to be one of the first ever to do structured servaluation evaluation for Carcass Merit and decided that the consumer was the paramount person in this pyramid and that we had to do everything possible to provide a product that they would spend their hard-earned money for to pull it through this system. Because without pull-through and without beef demand, none of the rest of the things we do and work on are going to happen. And so when, when we got that right as an industry, we really, really started to make some phenomenal progress about doing things for the right reasons, serving the ultimate
0: customer, which is the consumer of this product. Now let's jump back to your operation there, and uh, on the seed stock, and making that move from Pennsylvania yep. and, and uh, the location locales that you were at, and then moving to Nebraska—a a great location to be a part of the industry and to, to enhance, you know, grow your your seed stock. Uh, what what was your goal when, when you settled there?
1: Well, back up just a, a touch. But I'd always told my wife when we were planning to get married, and I. I said, you know, I've I've been to the western part of this country, and I I love what I see. And I I said that's where the rubber meets the road. That's where this cow calf industry is is massive. It's very very important. It's key to the economies in many of these states, and the beef industry as a whole. And I said someday, don't be surprised if, you know, I'd like to move somewhere to. Montana, South Dakota, Nebraska, you name it. But I traveled enough in those days to see the tremendous underground water aquifer that the state of Nebraska has access to, the value that it has to agriculture and the wonderful sustainability of what we work on, and uh, you know, crop production, food production, and, and that was a great factor. And when I was working there at Top Hill, uh, Harold decided to sell the ranch and the cattle. And that was a little tough for me at the time, but one of the greatest decisions I made in my life looking back on it, is that I stayed to help him do that. Had I just pulled up and laughed and just worried about myself and not the guy who was signing my check for lots of years, I would look back on that today and regret that move. And I'm really glad that that wasn't the case. And we picked up three little kids and an old car and a few cows he let me run and moved them to North Platte, Nebraska. And as they say, the rest is history. We, um, it, took, it took a long time to get our feet in the ground. And we worked at a lot of different parts of the agricultural industry, helped with some sales and some advisory consulting type things. All the while, uh, with our main goal of building a very, very good herd of purebred Angus cattle.
0: Now, most ranches are multi-generational; they're deep rooted in communities, and sometimes farms and ranchers don't like it when new people move in, or like all those people are moving from the East Coast. What, what were some of those struggles that that you had there? Because I, I what. I, I mean, obviously it was a great opportunity and it's turned out great for you and the success that came with it. But there's a lot of young people out there, too, that may have opportunities today right. to be able to relocate. And it might not even be in the same county, same state. Uh, what, what was that experience for you? Well, it, it wasn't easy.
1: If I was to tell somebody, oh, yeah, just, you know, it's a walk in the park, uh, that would that would just be very, very untruthful. Because it was an absolute challenge. It was very difficult. We had no family of any kind anywhere close. And the bottom line is it reflected a lot back on my childhood and the way I was raised. And about your word is your bond and your integrity. And it was difficult to be really accepted. We were treated extremely well treated well, but that didn't mean somebody wanted to do, do business with you. And so that took many years of, of hard work and effort, but we never strayed from the basic principles of how we believe you should conduct your business. And over time, that won out. And uh, we were very, very fortunate to be accepted in and participate in so many different opportunities to actually try to support
0: our industry and try to make it better. So maybe let's focus on the genetics. Obviously you brought some cows to Nebraska. From there it opened some opportunities from all that hard work. Where, where did you focus those genetics at? What were some of those bloodlines that you started implementing there? Well, you know, back in,
1: back in the day with those first few cattle, um, keep in mind we didn't have the data or the information well not even close it was basically a visual appraisal of cattle we did very early on in all of my efforts wherever i've been in the cattle business either for other people or for ourselves we kept the basic fundamental records the birth weights the weaning weights the yearling weights we understood that Uh, my master's degree in animal breeding um, gave me a a wonderful insight into uh, Sire Ranch interaction, how genetics worked, that the ranking of sires, regardless of the phenotypic traits you got for weaning weight or yearling weight, those sires were going to rank the same. And that was was a great leg up to know that once you had a little data and information on these things, um, that had great value, and that was somewhat predictable for what we were trying to do. So those early bloodlines, we had we had some Black Revolution bloodlines in there, and shortly after I got to Nebraska in 1981, I bought a bull calf out of Montana. And uh, actually, I selected him for the Nile sale there in Billings. Yep. I used to select those cattle for about 10, 12 years, and uh, selected this calf from the Arnsen operation at Christina. Oh, yeah. You're very familiar I'm very with a very familiar lot of with this. the Arnsens. And so... Um, uh, I told the boys, I said, you probably ought to come up with a special name for this bull. And they said, we don't know anything about naming a bull. You name him. So I, I really loved his mother and his grandmother and the pedigree behind him. He went back to Candler Forever 376 from the Danao Ranch, you know, yep. over in eastern Montana. And uh, I named him AAR Nutrin. And today, that's a very well-known name of a bull. He wasn't very popular, but I found the bull because of his mother and grandmother and the things that I like in cattle, felt like he would be a phenomenal maternal sire for the breed. And, you know, I'll admit, I got lucky, but I had a lot of input. I'd seen sisters to the bull in production. Uh, It looked good to me. Everything was lining up right on that. And he turned out to be even better than I could have ever hoped for and was the foundation sire one of the great lines of Angus cattle in the breed today. And, of course, A.R. trend finally, uh, uh, the Van Dykes used him there at Manhattan, Montana, produced the uh, uh, 315 bull, new trend 315, and we used that bull a little bit. In 1990, we produced a bull called B.R. New Design 036. And so every individual in the angus breed today that somewhere goes back to new design as pedigree he was the foundation of that entire line of cattle and he actually became one of the greatest sires in the development of the angus breed in australia you know throughout the years yep. so that's some of the background of pedigrees and how it plays out and you just keep half. You have to just keep um, keep on that that plan. Uh, if you just continue to use what you believe to be the quote-unquote popular bull, um, it's kind of a recipe for a disaster. The um, I got to the point. And when I was growing up, it was kind of raised that next really great one, you know? Yeah. And yeah. when I finally, way too late in life, realized that that wasn't working quite like I wanted it to, one of the things I decided was, I'm going to see how small I can make the scrap pile in this herd of cattle. <laughs> and when I did that, the great one showed up.
0: Yeah. So— What's your experience in in helping commercial breeders improve improve their herds?
1: Yeah, I I think that's absolutely essential. And, you know, a, a lot of commercial producers, like any of us, are prone to read a publication or read advertising or look in an AI stud book and say, oh, yeah, yeah, here's the next bull. Well... The right bull for any commercial herd is not the same bull. I think that a commercial cattleman has to have a perspective of what's strong in his herd, what's weak in his herd, or her herd, and they have to then seek that sire that balances that, maintains what they've got, but try to improve what... they think needs improvement in that herd of cattle i think that's the biggest mistake most of us make in this purebred or cow calf industry that we do not analyze what are the most important traits we need to improve and which ones we think we're pretty good at and that then that dictates the kind of sire with the kind of data and the kind of performance and genetic makeup that we need so i can help with that a great deal I don't try to push it on anybody, but I'm tickled to death when somebody will ask me because I think we have enough knowledge of what our cattle will do and where they're strong um, and how how we can help certain people.
0: And you know this very well back in the day, it was just get a big cow, get a big calf, ship it out. But nowadays that focus is let those cow calf producers, and this I'm 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 the most familiar obviously with cow calf producers up, up being from Montana, but now we're we're focusing on those smaller frame cattle for rangeland and improving the actual quality of those cuts. Uh, wh- what is your advice for those producers out there that maybe haven't taken that step to actually become more involved in these programs that you can get a few more pennies on in these video auctions and, and focus on these genetics because. You know, there's a lot of great operations out there, cow-calf producers, that have made some good steps, but, you know, there's a lot of great resources out there to be able to get a few more pennies and, and save a little money on your input costs.
1: There's no question about that. There's more data, more information available than ever before in history. The young people coming into this business that I visit with, uh, they always ask, well, how, how can I do what you did? And... Um, and i said well number one you better have a passion for it number two you better not go into it expecting to make world-class money nope. um those two things are absolutely essential but you should be very very uh keen to the fact that you have more information at your fingertips than we had for most of our lifetime and so those are the great advantages uh when you when you start looking at your question again, was how was it? Repeat that for
0: me about. Uh, so how can cow calf producers that maybe are just looking at that commercial side of things yeah. they haven't changed much other than they might yeah. put them on the video now they maybe don't might 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 not do those programs to, to enhance yeah. you know. Well,
1: I, I you know I don't I don't try to tell people where they should merchandise their cattle. Um, but I, I am very adamant about the fact that they should be a little more professional in how they approach both their breeding program and their merchandising program. And I do try and have tried through our sale catalog over the years to provide avenues and opportunities for them to think about that might fit, fit their, uh, their philosophy. But I think it's extraordinarily important that they do understand the value of genetics, I think it's under it's, it's extraordinarily important. They understand how these cattle they're breeding fit their environment. We know that that uh, reproductive component is, in the long term, the most important genetic component in their program because. That female has to stay in production a number of years to recapture and amortize the value of putting that heifer in production. Now some people will buy replacement heifers. Those that do that changes their program entirely. They're gonna be more of a terminal market situation and they do not have to pay as much attention to the maternal side or the reproductive side. And those cattle will mainly go to the feedlot, be terminal, and end up, you know, being in the marketplace. So everybody's situation is a little different, but still to maintain these cow herds in so many various environments, it's absolutely essential that we get that part right. So that's number one. Number two is, I, after we did structured sale evaluation in the 1980s, uh, we finally got into some grid marketing years later mid 1990s, it began, started. And I have customers who are still with the ranch and the program today yet, who embarked on that. And in Nebraska, down the Platte River Valley, lots of crops, lots of feed. So a lot of these guys start feeding their own cattle. And early, early on, we had a higher percentage of commercial cattlemen maintain and feed their own cattle than most people in the purebred cattle business, even today yet. That was a blessing for me, more difficult, more selection traits because of marbling, quality, cutability, all of those things. But I know through some of the tough times economically over these decades in this business, that our customers who got that right, fed their own cattle and marketed it on a grid, it kept them in business. The premiums that we figured out early on were available in this business were much bigger than we could have ever dreamed. And today they're even bigger than that. And you read a lot about this, you hear a lot about it, but I've got reams of kill data in my office at home that absolutely back that information up. Would I ever Would I ever tell a commercial customer, a bull customer of mine, you should feed your own cattle? I never have done that in my life, and I don't intend to but I will provide them with that, that information and tell them how it works for some people. And if they think they would like to, I encourage them to talk to a feed yard and maybe partner or maybe retain a percentage. You know, have some skin in the game, but don't handle all the risk. Because these guys that feed cattle today, I admire immensely in their ability to handle so much risk in these cattle and year in and year out, do that. And to have them as a customer for our cattle is a privilege we should cherish because I'm not man enough to be in
0: that business. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Bill, I'm really enjoying our conversation, but we need to just take a quick sponsor break. And when we come back, we'll continue to talk with Nebraska's Bill Rischel about his involvement and his successes here in the cattle industry don't go away we'll be back with cattleman's call right after this your national cattleman's
1: beef association knows when it comes to the issues in washington there's simply no room for gray area trade fake meat the cost and impact of the green new deal the decisions being made today affect the livelihood of your fellow farmers and ranchers and what matters to cattlemen matters to us it's as clear as black and white. Visit joinncba.org
0: to learn more. Returning back here today with Bill Rischel of Nebraska. He's uh, been telling us about his life story. He's, he's laughing right now. But, but, Bill, you mentioned something earlier today, you know, obviously attending a land-grant university just as I did uh, for, for my higher education. Land-grant universities have played a big role in the development of our rural communities and the and, and advancements and enhancements uh, of agriculture. And uh, you mentioned that you do work with the University of Nebraska Lincoln in, uh, in, in giving lectures. It, but that point you made earlier in our conversation was about how back in the day, producers relied on, on the suggestions and the genetics. Uh, Where where are land-grant universities at today? Do you think they're coming back to to that? Do you think they're working differently? Uh, Because in Montana, we have a new Angus herd that we just started with uh, the Montana State University to help enhance uh, the genetics there in the state of Montana. What's your experience with Nebraska or other land-grant universities?
1: Well, specifically to Nebraska,
0: I really, really like what's going
1: on today with the University of Nebraska. Uh, in our Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources uh, in the Animal Science Department. And and they are adapting extremely well to the new technology, um, promoting that systems approach to the beef cattle industry, to the livestock industry as a whole. And I think all of these are very, very positive. Specifically to your question about land-grant institutions, you know, the land-grant, well, Abraham Lincoln started that with the Morrell Act, and the land-grant institution is always thought of as a three-legged stool. There's education, there's research, and there's extension to get that information out to the agricultural producers and population. And I will tell you that some land-grant institutions are losing their way. And I'm very, very forthright and blunt about that because I don't like what's happening in some of those situations. Uh, I think we went through some few spots at UNL, at Nebraska, a little that way in my tenure since I live, lived there in Nebraska. But I love the direction it's going today. I think they've got the land-grant mission right. I think they're doing a phenomenal job at teaching the next generation of cattle producers and those who are associated in affiliated type businesses with our cattle producing community. But um, there's, there's so, the curriculums have changed a lot but I think we're very, very well on track with that fundamental land grant mission. And I, I'm a real believer in that, um, and I think that any of us who believe that agriculture plays this phenomenal role in the economic power and success of this country, which it does, then we should all believe in that land grant mission.
0: Before uh, we started our conversation here uh, for the podcast, we were you were talking about you've been in just a few leadership roles over the years you know i i actually lost count writing those down but you know there's been a lot of changes in in organizations and in missions and uh, goals let's just let's just start at the state level and you know some of the challenges in and how hard it is sometimes to change and and adapt when mergers happen and whatnot. Let's just talk about your experience there in Nebraska and then how that's led to the American Angus Association, to the NCA, then to the NCBA, and and as a producer, you know, how that affected you and how that affected the industry as well.
1: Yeah, I I think you could almost sum up one of the major changes in most of these organizations was the realization that the more individuals we have pulling this wagon, the better off we are, and that we needed to refocus from just the production end of our business to realizing that what the state government legislatures do, what the federal legislature does, and the regulations they uh, embark on or, or uh, vote on and pass that impact our industry, some positively, some of the services they provide are exceptional. But many times there are individuals who are several generations removed from our industry and our business, and they don't realize what great caretakers we are to start with, And when you talk about sustainability, if we weren't good at that and taking care of natural resources, we would not be here today. And sometimes that gets out of line. And so it's become essential because there's fewer and fewer of us on the land, it's become absolutely essential that we form together and have these institutions, these associations where we can form uh, policy, and make sure that those policies are beneficial to our way of life. So that's the major change that I see that's taken place with mergers from our old Nebraska stock growers when they merged with the livestock feeders and the Farmer Stockman Council, created a Seed Stock Council. Many, many states are doing the same thing or have done, and we've done it on a national level. Those those are the keys, that's the one key thing that I think's been extremely important in these years. So
0: with that, it, it's tough to get away from the operation. We say that on all these podcasts, and everyone says, you know, you got to get there, make time. But but for yourself, when did it click to become active with these groups, whether in Nebraska, on the Nebraska level or the American Angus? When was that moment for you? Was it always there? Or was it was there a moment that you said, I, I have to be at the table?
1: It's uh, I think
0: to some degree it was always there
1: in college uh, Worked in the beef barn dollar an hour okay. um, It was uh, and I wouldn't have traded it for the world But I got involved in the block and bridle club uh, the little international livestock show participated a couple years and then got in a leadership role and was manager uh, assistant manager as a junior and manage that as a senior, along with other fellow students and all officers, and put that show on for the students at the university. And I think little things like that you became involved in, and you maybe enjoyed that relationship. I often felt like that when I went to a meeting or participated, even a little more than just being in attendance, I came home feeling a little guilty that. I got more out of it than I gave and that was important to me a learning process and how I could apply that to my operation that was part of it but I did I I there were years that I didn't do nearly as much because the operation demanded raising kids and they were involved in all kinds of things everybody goes through this Uh, But I just found a lot of good out of it. And when I looked at what these organizations were trying to do, even though there'd be disagreement at times, even though they weren't all on the same page, at the end of the day, there were things coming out of those meetings that was going to have a positive impact on me and my ability to make a living with my wife and family in our operation. And I did enjoy the people that I met along the way. Uh, just immensely
0: valuable relationships. So you mentioned that you served as president there in Nebraska. Was that uh, with the with the stockmen? The that stock was rowers? that was with
1: the current Nebraska cattlemen. Okay, okay. Actually, I'd been on that board from the time it merged there around 1990, and went through that one whole time and then went to the American Angus Association 90 for six years and certified Angus beef and then came back to the well I, I served on the uh, product enhance, enhancement committee when we did the muscle profiling work and, the and that was for co- NCBA right that was NCBA yep. and then recycled back into Nebraska and went up through the chairs and was president there in 2010
0: okay now as a uh you, you look at your involvement today and uh, all the opportunities you've had, what you've learned. What, what are some of those biggest, uh, I don't want to call it regrets, but maybe uh, decisions that, you know, you may have done differently and maybe your home operation, maybe on a policy standpoint? Because uh, uh, there's so many things we look back on, especially in the ranching industry. Um just, just to give you a little insight to help uh, our, our listeners out in, in well, their decision making. I, I,
1: yes, and I, and I think um, you know, I don't know if there's anything uh, things happen in your life for a reason um, we struggled in our purebred cattle operation in those early years, we struggled mightily and it was because we just didn't follow the fad or the trend or the, the most popular bull but I truly did, with my background in meats and uh, those experiences I mentioned earlier, I really did get early on, and I'm not sure how, but thought there's got to be something that makes more sense than chasing frame score, chasing milk production, chasing some other trait, or chasing the show ring, which I showed cattle in my life. I was part of that. but. One thing happened to me when we bought the AAR Nutren bull in 1981 as a calf, believing he was a herd builder. About 1986, we had a tour with the Nebraska Angus Association at our place, and I had breeders come up to me. I put all the daughters of Nutrin in this one paddock, big old calves on them, and they made fun of Nutren when I first brought him home and said he was a little bull. He was too little. Well, he was 58 inches, uh, um, you know, like, yeah, 58 inches at the hip. But a lot of cattle in those days were 66 inches at the hip. And so they made fun of him being too little, too small. And yet when he came back and looked at his daughters, those guys asked me that day, they said, aren't you afraid of getting your cows too big? And I was extremely, um, I, I guess just lost in a way. Uh, concern and i thought this is silly the sire that they said was too little is now siring daughters that they say are too big and i was uh, frustrated told my wife that night i said maybe i need to find something else to do in this life i said either that or we need to figure out a better way of doing business and that's when i decided there had to be more value to the end product that somebody was paying their own money for And that's when we started doing structured sire evaluation for carcass merit. And that was about 1986. And we were one of the very first in the country anywhere to do a lot of that, to identify the genetic component for better carcass merit.
0: Now, you mentioned uh, stock shows and and, and taking cattle there. And there's been a lot of changes to formats of stock show and the type of cattle actually going through the ring. what are some of those positive and negatives with the changes in stock show formats over the years that, that you see?
1: Well, I, it's certainly more positive that we're looking at cattle for more data. And I judged a lot of shows in my life, national shows, uh, multiple breed shows. And had the pleasure of doing the National Shorter Show with a friend of mine uh, in the mid-2000s and the National Hereford Show in Denver a year later, and... Uh, Certainly, these these cattle have gotten more functional. We still need in the real world to apply more actual data to these cattle and use that data in the best way we can. So I still see today the junior shows as having maybe one of the most uh, important impacts because they provide the opportunity to keep a lot of our kids involved in beef cattle. They love showing, I get that, it's fun. There were, these, these young people are spending time with quality young people and that's important. And so they learn work ethic and they really participate at it, it's a competition. All those things are valuable. And our young people in our industry, no matter where they go at events, the people who are standing around on the security guard at those places will tell you, they have fewer problems of any kind when egg kids are there than almost any youth event they have. And that's a testimony to the value of these junior shows and things like that to raising kids. So I, I see all those benefits. So I'm not one side of this fence or the other. But in, in our business, certainly today, the value in these cattle uh, at every level has a lot more to do at the end of the day with the economic value they possess. And that's more than just a visual appraisal in the show ring. Now, we were one of the very first to quit showing cattle on the hill in Denver. And what I did was, I got pens down in the yards and just took bulls and put them on display like a trade show. And did that for quite a number of years. And so that was my point. That's how we transition our thinking process from competing for a ribbon to being able to visit with commercial cattlemen about our cattle, our product, and see if it fit their
0: operation. So what's the the future of your operation look like? Are are your daughters still involved? Or what's that that look like on, on a planning level?
1: Well, we had three girls. They were all involved with the ranch. Um, They all participated in 4-H and some junior Angus. And um, they went off to school. Uh, Two of them played softball at Nebraska. And the other ended up being on um, uh, all the student forum there at the university. So they were always engaged and did a lot of things. And I joke a lot. They married three great guys. They're very successful. But I said we didn't find a cowman, a whole bunch of them, <laughs> and so uh, uh, that that created a little bit of a of a roadblock for us, and it was a challenge. Um, any one of them could have come home and run the operation, uh, no doubt. But they're all very successful today. They all now have kind of their own business, and. Um, One of the things I felt, and call it being a little prejudicial, but I think this cow herd that we developed there at North Platte was very, very unique in the industry, what they did and what they contribute for our customers, for the industry. Our, Our goal always was to have the genetics in these cattle that would improve or help every segment of this industry be more financially viable. And we worked very, very hard at putting all those things together. So I didn't want to see that go up in a big dispersal sale under the big tent, as you will. And uh, that was important to me. I realized that oftentimes that's when they're worth more than any other time in your yep. life. Yep. But uh, I, I felt like we had a responsibility, a lot of these longtime customers. And that responsibility was if as long as they thought we were continuing to do the right thing provide them with the right genetics that they had a place to go and depend upon so we talked to a couple of different outfits there in the state we thought we might have something going where they would buy that and keep it going just didn't happen and then along from a third party along came an opportunity I was given a call one day and presented with a phone number to call a young couple uh, that they thought might have some potential and so trey and Dana Wasserberger who both have a great background in uh, commercial cow calf and the feedlot industry and not so much in the purebred uh, were very interested and we got together in uh, November of 2016 and made a deal uh, we've transitioned they bought most of that operation and we've designed it in a way that they can do some in, over time, yep. but they are now running that. I still help with sire selection and some matings and customer relations. It's allowed me to slow down a little bit. I don't move as fast as I used to, and I, I'm a little stiffer in the morning when I get up. But uh, it's, it's been one of those things you never know how it's going to work. And I will tell you that the good Lord was looking over our shoulder because Trey and Dana are doing a phenomenal job. They have a passion for this industry, not just the purebred thing. They love it too, but they have a passion for this industry, and they're hardworking, as you'll find today, and now three years into this have had very, very successful sales. And the program, I'm proud to say, is still headed charted in the same direction for the same reasons to help every segment of this industry and uh, we're very very fortunate and very blessed to have had that work out that way.
0: Well Bill I really admire that because so many operations when, when they're faced with something like that it's just easier like you said to disperse the herd and mm-hmm. sell off that land and that land might not go back in agricultural production so I I, I really admire mm-hmm. you you for doing that because it's that's not easy. Well
1: and, and, and we really all need to admire the young couple that's willing to take this risk. Yep. It is a big risk. And um, Barb and I and, and our girls, we're the fortunate ones that we found somebody that has that desire. And it's a very, very special thing, and I recognize that. And it's, it's one in a million, you know. But... They, uh, I have, I've had, this is, this is and I, I make comedy out of this a bit, but I've had purebred breeders come up to me and say, uh, well, now how's that going to work? They don't have any experience in the purebred cattle business. And I say, thank God. <laughs> I said, <laughs> and I joke about it a lot, but the bottom line is, their experience in the cow-calf industry, the Washerburgers in Wyoming, And uh, the other side, Dana's family with the feedlot industry and commercial cow in Nebraska. And I can help them with the purebred cattle business. But they get those two segments that are the first two immediate customers down the line of our seed stock industry. Mm -hmm. And uh, you can can relate to the packing industry. If you fed cattle, you're going to have some experience there. And they are all tuned in on quality product, on the demand of quality in our industry and what it means to us, and ultimately this consumer pulling a product through the system. If anybody thinks they can push a chain or push a rope, they do not get the cattle business because you have to pull both of those to make it happen, and the same thing applies to our business.
0: So just jumping back to the consumers there. What is the best way for producers to interact with those consumers? Maybe it's through a different party, maybe it's through a branded a product, maybe it's at a local uh, farmer's market. In your experience and the changes you've seen and how consumers have driven demand and how that product is received, wh- what's, what's your thought on that?
1: Well, there are several. It's, it's very, very difficult to just go out and decide you're going to do something like that on your own. But that's part of getting involved in some of these associations that we have, these organizations. They do a lot of that work, and you can become a part of a team, and that team effort's very good. We, many years ago, bought into U.S. Premium Beef right from the get-go. I believed in what we were doing in the industry, and I went home and told my wife. I went to the very first organizational meeting of USPB. And I came home and I said, you know, if we're gonna believe in what we're doing here, this carcass testing and structure share evaluation, then we better put some money where our mouth is. And we bought shares in US premium beef. And they're part of national beef. And not too many years ago, my wife and I, along with a couple other couples, the cattle business, went back east on Labor Day weekend to a supermarket. And we stood there and did steaks, cut them up in little pieces. And as they came in to shop, ask them to come over, taste the product, did these steaks on a grill with nothing more than a little salt, and these people would say, oh my God, this is the best beef I've ever tasted. What did you put on this for a special sauce? No sauce, a little salt, it's great beef, and it's good for you. We saw a story of a family that came in with this little gal that was probably 11 or 12 and, she, and we had a cooler right next to where we were working here. Some of these steaks were in the cooler. And so this little gal came up and took that with a toothpick and took that little piece of steak. And she said, that's the best steak I ever tasted. And my wife says, well, they're right over there in that cooler. And she goes over and grabs several of them, threw them in her mom and dad's shopping basket. <laughs> it was the coolest yep. thing in the world. But you you get involved with these organizations, and you get that opportunity. And that was a very special weekend that we spent doing nothing but promoting our product, helping national beef, USPB, and and interacting, telling our story to these consumers right there where they're buying their groceries. And there's lots more examples of that. But think about trying to run for the beef board. Be a part of that and be a part of promotion, be a part of advertising, be a part of making this industry better. Uh, there's a lot of ways to do it. You can even do it with your state beef council on a local basis. But when you get the opportunity, you just have to grab that if you care to. Um, it's, it's easier for some people than others. I get that. But uh, I think interacting with your students, if you're a producer in this business, and you have the opportunity to go to an FFA deal or a 4-H deal or a university uh, marketing class like I do. I think you just have to take that opportunity and go
0: with it. Bill, we've had a great conversation here today, and I learned so much about you. And, and I know our listeners learned a lot, too. And we could probably keep talking here. We might have to have a part two maybe a few few, few months down the road here. But, uh, Bill, uh, what's, what's one tip you want to share with young producers out there before uh, we conclude our conversation today? I I really,
1: really believe that, you know, in some cases, young people come out of college, they do have a degree, and they think, okay, I'm really seeking this high-paying job, profession, whatever it is, and uh, they... They need to redirect their focus. Um, They need to think more about what their passion in life is. And make sure they get that first and foremost. You've heard this before. Most of them have heard this. But when you get up in the morning, feel like you're really looking forward to doing what's in line for that day. And it doesn't have to be going out to check cows necessarily or or to do whatever the job is on the ranch that day, but have a passion and feel like it's really what you want to do. And I can honestly tell you, there's days you'll come in just dog tired, what have you, but you'll still be happy and feel like you had a great day. And at the end of the day, if you have that passion Uh, I would dare say you probably feel like you never went to work a day in your life, and that's it Uh, That's in a nutshell. It's not about the money you make you want to make a nice living and you know Have it with your family, but it's what you can enjoy and hopefully contribute to society Uh, It's more than just uh, a Paycheck its quality of life, and it's uh, how you interact with your community Lots of ways to contribute to things that better the the human condition
0: Great words of wisdom there from Bill. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I got got a little teary-eyed there listening to those last comments well, from it's, you.
1: it's my pleasure to be with you, Lane.
0: Well, thank you so much, Bill Rischel from Nebraska, adding to a great conversation here on the Cattleman's Call podcast. Well, friends, thanks for being with us. Make sure and subscribe to the podcast link. If you have any suggestions or people that you would like us to talk with, make sure and send a notification there to our email link there in the description of the podcast. And we just want to continue to tell the great story of all the people here in the livestock industry. That'll do it for today. I'm Lane Nordland. We will see you just down the road. Thanks for tuning in to NCBA's Cattleman's Call podcast with Lane Nordland. For more information, visit ncba.org and make sure to subscribe to the podcast today.